One of the great Christian writers of the 20th century was a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. He was a bachelor uh, until his late 50s when he married a woman named Joy Davidman. A short time after they were married, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and Lewis had to watch as his bride slowly and painfully died before his eyes. Not long after her funeral, Lewis began to write down some of his thoughts in, in the back of his notebooks. And just before his own death, this, these thoughts were taken from the various notebooks he had written them in. They were put together in one book called A Grief Observed. And at the beginning of the book, Lewis makes no effort to hide his intense disappointment with his religion. What had occurred in the depths of his grief was not at all what he had expected. The early pages are filled with disillusionment that, that bordered on despair. As he continues to work through the grief process, he began to realize that the problem was not so much with God, but with himself. It was his expectations and not the experiences themselves that lay at the bottom of his problem. He discovered the secret of disillusionment is that we often... Uh, build up an illusion of what we expect. More often than not, he wrote, or he concluded, we experience disillusionment because we have built the wrong kind of expectations. Very rarely is what we experience what we expected to experience. It would be nice to say the kind of disillusionment that Lewis felt was unique to him. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that this is more of a universal problem than a unique problem. I doubt there would be anyone in here tonight who can honestly say that their Christian life had been all ups. All of us have gone through the ups and downs of life. All of us have experienced uh, all kinds of troubles and trials and, and stresses in our lives. And these things could cause us to be disillusioned if we're not careful. Sorry, I had the wrong, wrong sermon notes. We would have been here twice as long tonight if I had gone with that one. And we wonder in those times, what do we do? What do we do when we're discouraged? What do we do when we're disillusioned? What do we do uh, when, when circumstances conspire to press on us? And make us feel disappointment. Because there's all manner of things that could happen in our lives that could leave us with a sense of disappointment and disillusionment. Right? It could be that perhaps a loved one was sick and we earnestly prayed for them to be healed, only to have them get worse, stay the same, never get better, or in fact, died from it. Perhaps we came to Christ with the, the idea that once we surrendered our life to Jesus, all of our problems would go away. Uh, and when we came to Christ, our problems did not go away. In fact, in many cases, maybe they even got worse. Perhaps we did everything we could to train up our children the way they should go, only to have them go in the way they should not have gone. Any number of circumstances could cause us to feel this way. But the one constant in all of the circumstances that cause us to feel this way is the weakness we feel in the midst of that. Now, not physical weakness, but spiritual weakness. In the times we're disillusioned and we're discouraged are the times when we feel the weakest spiritually. These are times when we are tired of putting on a happy face in public. And so we would rather not go out in public at all. 
These are the times where we don't feel we have the energy to to pray or to read God's word for ourselves, much less to do anything with anyone else to try to help them grow in their spiritual life. In times like this, we question the accuracy of Romans 8.28 and we wonder how on earth can God use this circumstance and how can he work it together for our good and his glory as he promised. In these times, we wonder how much longer we can go on. Where do we find the strength to continue? How do we keep pressing forward when everything within us is crying out for us to just give up, lay down, and don't go on anymore? Well, God's Word has an answer for us tonight. Open your Bible to Isaiah 40. We are going to start in verse 27. That should be on page 548 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. God says, Why do you say, Jacob, and why do you assert, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives strength to the weary, to the one who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths will grow weary and tired and the vigorous young men will stumble badly, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become Weary. Title of the message tonight is The Power of Weakness. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for men like C.S. Lewis who have gone through hard times, journaled those times, and allowed us to peek at their pain and see how they worked through it. Father, we're not alone. And yet the enemy often wants us to think that we are. The enemy wants us to think that the pain we feel is unique to us and no one else. No one else would understand the disillusionment and discouragement we feel. No one else would understand the weakness we feel. Father, we are we are too good at putting on a good face and pretending to be strong. Never letting anyone see the weakness within us. But Lord, your word, your word reveals to us that there is help in those times of weakness. That you are the God who who does strengthen the weary. You are the God who helps us in our distress. You are the God who gives us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. As we look at this familiar passage tonight, Father, let Holy Spirit come and open our hearts and minds that we would understand it in ways we have never understood before. Help us, Father, not to feel ashamed of our discouragement or our disillusionment or or our weakness. Let us know that in that time and in that pain, we can turn it to you, O God. And you can use it. You are who your word says you are. And you can do everything your word says you can do. Even work all things together for our good and for your glory. 
though we can't see all the things that you're doing and all the ways you can work it out. Let us have that that tiny mustard seed faith that says, I don't know how, but I know my God can. Strengthen that resolve in us tonight. And Lord, where we are weak, give us strength. Where we need endurance, help us to persevere. Guide us tonight to turn, to bring our pain and our weakness and all of those things to you and just lay them before you and ask you to heal the brokenness within. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And let me speak your word and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So now keep the context of Isaiah 40 in your mind as we look at this passage. This is written to a people at the time that it's going to really be speaking to them. They They are conquered people. They are an exiled people. They've been banished from their homeland. They are a discouraged people. They have been conquered. They have been taken from their homeland. They have been scattered to another nation. They are forced to to live under a people that is not like them, that does not even care for them. They are a weak people. They have no ability to fight oppression, no ability to go back to where they came from. They're just down. They're discouraged. They're disillusioned. And they're weak. And in this passage, what God does is He... He contrasts their weakness with his strength. He's doing this to to remind them that their their strength is nothing compared to his strength. He he wants them to understand, to, to, to marvel at his strength and to trust in his strength despite their weaknesses. They're meant to to remember how great and how powerful and how awesome their God is and seek their great and strong God. And in the process, what they will find is God is glorified through their weakness. God is glorified through their acknowledging their weakness and turning to him. And what the main truth I want us to know tonight is our weakness. It magnifies God's strength. Our weakness magnifies God's strength. I want to give you three ways, quickly-ish, how how our weakness magnifies God's strength. First is, our weakness pushes us to seek God. So imagine, put yourself in the story. You're a Jew. You're held captive in Babylon. You've been raised in captivity. Your parents may well have been raised in captivity. Your nation was conquered. The walls were torn down to shame them. The temple that where your your people have worshipped your God for generations has been raised. And it is gone. Never, as far as they can tell, to be raised up or picked up again. You still hear stories. Loved ones who were brutally murdered by the Babylonians. People who died in the trek from Jerusalem to Babylon. You've been raised in a country not your own. But you've not been accepted. You've been continually reminded this is not your country. You are an exile here. 
But you've been taught the stories of God's word from a child. And you know that your God has not really abandoned you all of this time. That even though you're an exile and you have been, there have been messages that have come from prophets like Jeremiah saying the day will come when God will raise you up and bring you back into your homeland. You've been taught this this passage probably from Isaiah because it was written before the captivity. You were taught that there is a day when when your great God would bring you back. But nothing has changed. Nothing seems to have changed. Nothing seems like it's ever going to change. You're still living in a foreign land. You still can't worship your God according to the dictates of his word. You still are in servitude to a pagan king who cares nothing about your God. The walls of your city are still in ruins, declaring to all who walk by it, this city is weak, powerless and nothing. The temple of your God is still in ruins and no one can really go to worship him there. There's no sign The pagan king has any desire or any willingness to let you or your people return to your homeland. Can you feel the weight of the disillusionment they would have felt? Can you imagine the hopelessness they must have been experiencing? Can you imagine them beginning to wonder if God was going to keep his promise? Can you imagine how weak, helpless they must have felt? Why keep hoping? Why keep praying? Why keep telling ourselves this same story over and over again when it's not coming to pass? Why keep going at all? If you can put yourself in that and you can feel the weight of that, then you might can understand what's being said in the first part of verse 27. Why do you say, Jacob, why do you assert, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? What we see, God is asking the first part, God is asking them a question, why they're saying, why they're asserting. But the last part is what they're saying. My way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes. Now. What they're asking is very similar to a lament that we find in the Psalms, like in Psalm 13. How long, O God, how long will you continue to ignore me? Will you continue to look the other way? They're not being smart toward God. They're not trying to to argue with God. They're, They're a praying people. They're a lamenting people. And they're wondering, is God aware Of what's going on in our lives here in Babylon. Does our God care about what's going on in our lives? They're wondering, legitimately wondering. Maybe God hasn't seen the conditions they're living in. Maybe God has forgotten what he has said. Maybe God doesn't realize they're not back in Jerusalem yet. And if he does know, why hasn't he acted? Why has nothing improved in all of these years? They're wondering why. They're wondering if. Is 
God going to get involved? Why, if God knows, isn't he acting on their behalf? They knew the stories. They knew what God had said here and in other places. They, they knew the stories from like judges. They knew that God was always tender and merciful to his people when they were in this kind of situation. They knew God was tender and merciful to his people in this kind of situation, even if it was their fault. Their history is filled with examples of them turning from God, facing a a sort of a temporal judgment because of that, and then crying out to God for mercy, and, and their God hearing from heaven and moving on their behalf. But what's different now? Did God care? Had they gone too far? Was was God far from them? Was God going to do anything to help them at this point? But what I want to draw our attention to is the fact they're seeking God and they're asking him these questions. Because at the time Jerusalem was conquered, they were not a seeking people. When Jerusalem was finally conquered, they were unbelievably far from God. The time of the final conquering of of Jerusalem was a time of outrageous sin and outright rejection of Yahweh. Now, normally the Israelites rebelled, but they kept a, a semblance of devotion to God. They at least pretended to be the people of Yahweh. This wasn't really true during the last days of Jerusalem. They had no desire to hear from God. They had no desire to seek God. Their false prophets told them nice things. Their false prophets told them everything would be fine. God was for them. He was never against them. God told the the false prophet said, continue to live in your rebellion. The world has changed. You were born this way. Everything is fine, just like you are. Don't listen to these other people. And when the other prophets would rise up and say, you need to repent. What you're doing is sin. God will send judgment. The people just wanted nothing to do with it. They would tell them to shut up, to go away. In the case of people like Jeremiah, they would toss them into pits and keep them away from the people. They boldly and unashamedly said they would worship their idols. They would not seek the God who had saved them all of those years. They would worship these false idols that they had made. And then every so often they they might ask a prophet what God wanted them to do. But it wasn't often. But if they did, and if the prophet response was different than what they wanted, they would tell the prophet, no, no, you're lying. These other people that are telling us smooth things, they're the ones that are telling us the truth. Time of the conquering of Jerusalem was a time when the people felt strong and prosperous. It was a time when the people felt as though they didn't really need God. Therefore, they did not seek God. The late pastor Darren Patrick once said, we don't pray because we don't think we're helpless. He is exactly right. We don't seek God because we really don't think we need His help. We think we've got it. We think we can handle it. 
And so we don't earnestly seek the Lord our God. However, nothing in the world drives us to our knees to seek our God in prayer like feeling helpless. In that moment, when our circumstances are beyond our control and in an almost brutal fashion, we are reminded of the fact we are utterly helpless and we really have no control over anything that goes on in the world around us. We realize how weak we really are. And in that time, what it does for us is it drives us to God. It pushes us to God. In that time where we have come to the end of ourselves, we're forced to turn to the only hope we know of. The only hope we have left. And that is God. This is one of the reasons that our weakness, it magnifies God's strength. It reminds us we are helpless. We can't fix it. We can't handle it. Our best efforts do fall short. Oh Lord, help. Oh Lord, I need you. Our weakness, it magnifies God because it pushes us to seek God. Our weakness magnifies God because it, it highlights God's greatness. In, in verse 28, it says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, His understanding is unsearchable. Now, if you remember from the earlier parts of this chapter, when we studied it, one of the main truths God wanted them to get from this chapter is He is great and awesome and worthy of praise and worthy of devotion. They need to be reminded of this because they're living in a land filled with idolatry. All around them are temples and shrines filled with gold-covered, gem-encrusted idols of all sorts. The pagans around them are declaring that their God is great because of the lands they've conquered. And they've conquered quite a few. Babylon was at the height of its power. It was, Nebuchadnezzar was like the largest, most powerful man in the world. And in those days, what they thought was a nation conquered another nation because the conquering nation's God was greater than the conquered nation's God. And so daily the Jews were reminded, our God conquered your God. And they were constantly being bombarded with the truth of your God is, or the teaching, not the truth, the teaching, your God is weak. Our gods are powerful. And, and what the Israelites desperately needed to know, to be reminded of, is the idols around them were just statues. But their God was the one true God. He was the great and awesome God. Forgetting the greatness of God is part of what led to the problems that they had. Before the fall of Jerusalem, they were focused on idols themselves. They had strayed from God and gone after many other gods. One in particular was the Queen of Heaven, which they were making offerings and sacrifices to the women were. And when the prophets rebuked them for it, 
The wives responded and said, our husbands not only know about it, our husbands encourage us to do it. So everybody was involved in the worship of the false gods that had crept in among the people that lived there. During the height of their prosperity and idolatry, God was far from their thoughts. Part of the reason they felt or part of the reason God was far from their thoughts is they began to believe that their idols and their stuff, their prosperity was greater and more important than God. Only in very few cases would they have actually said that. Rather, what they did was they they just lived it. They lived and showed that their idols were more important than Yahweh. They lived and showed that their prosperity was more important than Yahweh. They found their stuff to be far more compelling and far more valuable and far more important than keeping the statutes and the teachings of the God they had made a covenant with. But now in the time of their weakness, God had their full attention. And He wasn't just promising deliverance. He was reminding them about His greatness. He reminds them of who He is. He is the everlasting God. Unlike idols, God had no beginning and God had no end. There wasn't a day when Yahweh began to exist And there is not going to be a day where Yahweh ceases to exist. But the other gods, somebody invented them, somebody created them, somebody shaped them and fashioned them. And someday their their worship would fall from favor, as we see in our day now. He reminds them that he is the everlasting God, but also the Lord. The word used for Lord signifies the fact that he is the ultimate ruler Of all things. To put it in New Testament terms. We might say he tells them he is the king over all kings. And the Lord over all lords. He wants them to understand that he is Lord over Nebuchadnezzar. He is Lord over Babylon. He is Lord over Bel and over Nebo. And over every other Babylonian God that there may be. There is only one sovereign. And it is Yahweh. Who is the Lord over all. And the reason he is the Lord over all is because he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He rules over all the world because he created all the world. He is telling them he wants them to understand who he is. In this day, gods were seen as tribal gods. Right? Gods ruled particular areas. They, they ruled on the mountaintops or they ruled in the valley or they were Lord over the sea or they were Lord over this particular country or over this particular island. But no God could be claimed to be God over all the world. They were tribal gods. They were local deities. They, they did not have worldwide dominion. But Yahweh says, I do. And I do because I'm the creator of all the earth. Every place you put your foot is land I have created. I am Lord there. I'm God there. I'm ruler there. Because I created. No matter where they went, no matter where they were scattered, they were standing on Yahweh's earth. They were standing on Yahweh's land. And He was Lord God, creator and sustainer and ruler over that land. 
Now, this would not have been new information for them. They knew all of these things. But God was reminding them about this so they would know what these things mean about his greatness in contrast to their weakness. What did it mean? It mean his strength is limitless. Notice that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. Humans experience weakness. God does not. God does not suffer any of the limitations we as humans experience. He never experiences fatigue. He never experiences exhaustion. His strength is limitless. There is nothing God cannot do. There is nothing too hard for Him. Nothing is beyond His capabilities. And this will be important for them to remember as they are trying to hold on to a promise that He will one day deliver them from Babylon and take them back to their own land. It will be important for them to remember that He is God and not the idols of Babylon. And that if He determines they will leave, no God over Babylon, no king over Babylon can stop them. They need to know God can meet whatever need they may have. And He can meet that need no matter where they are. And He can do it because He is the everlasting God. He doesn't live on a time frame. He is the Lord, the ruler. And He is the creator. All of the world is His. This is a reminder we need as well. There is no limit to God's power. God can do anything He sets His mind to. As we often talk about here, God is the God of Ephesians 3.20 who can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could dare ask or imagine. We too need to know our God is the everlasting God. Therefore, His Word is still true today just as it was then. He is the Lord, the sovereign ruler over all things. He rules over our country, our nation, our lives, just as surely as He ever ruled over anything, anywhere. And He is the creator, God, over all the world. The idols around us threaten our faith. The idols around us call us to trust in them. They're not crafted to look like people often as they are in Babylon or in India or things like that. But they are no less shiny. They are no less gem-encrusted. They are no less expensive and beautiful and awesome to look at. And they no less call to us to trust them. Surely I'm worth more than the God you're hoping in. And we need to know that those things, whatever they are, they cannot deliver cannot do what they promised. They cannot keep their end of the bargain. At all times, the shiny baubles of our day overpromise and underdeliver, but not so with our Lord, the King Jesus Christ. His power is limitless. But not only was Yahweh's power limitless, his understanding was limitless. His understanding is unsearchable. God now tells them his understanding is unsearchable. 
the God who created all things, is infinitely wise and infinitely knowledgeable. The idea of unsearchable is if you could imagine you're in a, a room or you're in a place so vast that you could walk basically forever in any direction and you'd never come close to finding the edge, the end, the limits, the size, the scope of this place we were in. This is the picture of God's understanding. There is no end to God's knowledge. There is no end to God's understanding. This means God knows everything there is to know about everything there is to know something about. His people needed to know this because he had promised deliverance so many years before they were taken captive. So many years before this would really start to press on them and they would want this. How could they be sure? I mean, how could they be sure? We know the captivity lasted 70 years. How could they be sure God could speak accurately 70 years in the future? Maybe maybe he didn't understand how quite how big and powerful Babylon would be at that point. Maybe he didn't really understand how how shiny and alluring those gods were. How could they be sure that what he was saying was true and right and would come to pass? They could be sure of that. Because his understanding, his knowledge is unsearchable. We too need to know our God knows what is right and he knows what is best. We need to know that his understanding is unsearchable, that he knows the end from the beginning because our world rapidly changes. And what our world says is okay and acceptable and and in fact just good has shifted in our lifetimes drastically. What used to be evil is now good. What used to be good is now evil. And, And there are so many who affirm that what was good is now evil and what was evil is now good. We have to wonder, are we crazy? I mean... What are the odds? We're the only ones right in all the world. You ever look at it? See how many people disagree with what we believe on all of these things. Sexuality, morality, how to live, what to believe, who God is, what God's like, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And to be overwhelmed at the number of voices saying what you believe is nonsense. How do we hold tight to what God's word says? How do we continue to say, no, no, everyone else is wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. How could we say that? Well, we can only say that so long as we believe truly deep in the core of our being, believe Our God knows the end from the beginning. His understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is limitless. And yes, people who wrote down God's word, they were uneducated. They were goat farmers. They lived very simple, technologically non-existent lives. But the God who inspired them was not limited by them. 
we must know. His understanding is unsearchable or we will conform. We will capitulate. We will compromise. Because the pressure to do so is great and never ending. Our weakness. It it magnifies God's greatness by reminding us God doesn't suffer the limitations we do. God is not weak like we are. God is not mentally limited like we are. Do you know God's word tells us that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. How do we push back against that? How do we stay on the right path when even our heart, the Bible even says a person who trusts his heart is a fool. If I can't trust my heart and if I can't trust my feelings. Dear Lord, what do I trust? To know what's right, to know how to live, because so much hangs in the balance with this. I'm limited. I can't know. But my God can. And my God did. And my God has shown me. And so I don't have to have all the knowledge of the world. And I don't have to have all the strength of the world. I just have to believe my God. Take his word at face value. And say his understanding is unsearchable. His word is true. God be true. And everyone else can be a liar. So our weakness, it magnifies God's greatness by reminding us. God doesn't suffer the same limitations we do. And this is important because our weakness forces us to depend upon God. Since God doesn't suffer the same limitations we do, we can. In fact, we must go to him for help. And we're promised that when we go to God for help, we can find the help we need in the time we need it. This is part of what makes God so amazing, so great. It is one thing for God to have limitless power and limitless understanding. But that doesn't help me unless God is willing to share that with me. Unless God is willing to to make known his limitless understanding, his knowledge doesn't help me. Unless God is willing to to use his limitless power on my behalf, his power doesn't help me. But notice what it says here. He gives strength to the weary and the one who lacks might. He increases power. God wants us, wants them, wants us to understand that not only does he have all power and all knowledge and all understanding, but he will actually help in the situations we find ourselves in. Something important for us to recognize. Who God helps. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but common thing I've heard said even among professing Christians, is God helps those who help themselves. And I want to ask, can you find me that in the Bible? 
And the answer is no. No, of course you cannot find that in the Bible because that is not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say God helps those who helps themselves. The Bible says he gives strength to the weary. The ESV and the King James Bible say he gives strength to the faint. And the New King James says he gives strength to the weak. All the translations are trying to communicate the same idea. God strengthens those who have come to the end of themselves. Some people go through intense periods of deep struggling. And they feel a desperate need for God's help, but never seem to receive it. One of the reasons, there could be many, but one of the main reasons that we see reflected in this passage is because they don't come to the end of themselves. They still believe God helps those who help themselves. They still believe they're strong. They've yet to come to the place where they understand they're weak and they're unable to fix their problem. That they want God to be their spotter and not their savior. Now, here's what I mean by that. In the gym, when you work out, sometimes you need a spotter. Now, the spotter's job is to help you lift the weights when you can't lift it yourself. But the spotter doesn't lift the weights. The spotter gives the least amount of assistance possible to help you get the weight up. They don't grab it and take it and do the lift for you. What they do is as you struggle, they do just a little bit here and a little bit there until you complete the lift. And when you finish the lift with the spotter's help, you don't stand up and say, good job, spotter. You did that weight great. That was amazing what you did. You don't write in your journal, the spotter spotted 150 pounds. Instead, what you think about is how much you've done, though you needed a little help. When I used to lift weights, I would write in my journal and I would tell how much I did, how many reps I did. At the end, I would put WS with spot. The idea of a spotter is that in the end, you still did it. You just had a little help. Here's the reality. God does not want to be your spotter in your life. God is not interested in doing the bare minimum necessary for us to accomplish the task so that when it's done, we can stand up and say how strong we are. How great we are. All we have done. Thanks God for the help. But man, I'm amazing. Instead, what God wants is for us to recognize our weakness. So he can strengthen us. And when it's over, we can say, God did it. God lifted the weight. God carried the burden. God kept me through. God did it, not me. God will not make us strong until we accept the fact that we are weak. Later in Isaiah, God will say, I will not share my glory with another. And that means you. And that means me. And if we want part of the glory for what is done in our lives, God will not make us strong. 
God demands all the glory. God deserves all the glory. And that's all he will work for. Most of us live under an illusion of self-sufficiency and strength. And the illusion of sufficiency and strength obscures God's greatness from our eyes. It's like when you were a kid and you were watching a scary movie. How many of you, when you were kids and you watched a scary movie, you did this? You could still kind of see what was going on, but it was spotty. I mean, you you had the gist, but you couldn't really know what was going on. It protected you from the scariness on the screen. In a similar way, our illusion of strength, our illusion of sufficiency holds fingers up over our eyes and hides the fullness of God's greatness from us. Sure, we see bits, we see pieces, we see shines of glory, but we miss the fullness and the majesty of God's greatness. And it's and it's hidden from us until the illusion of strength is taken away. And God will. He will work on us, press on us to force that illusion away from us. Not because he's mean, but because he's good. Because he is better than what we can do. He is stronger than anything we can muster. And and because no matter how strong we think we are, how sufficient we think we are, we are limited. Look at what it says in verse 30. Youths will grow weary and tired. We all grow weary and tired. The idea of youths is people in the prime of their life. These are people who should be the strongest and the healthiest point of their life. And yet, the young and the strong and the healthy will at some point reach the place where they can't go on anymore. They can't do anymore. They will become weary They will become exhausted and they will not be able to go in their own strength any longer. No matter how strong we think we are, we will always at some point grow weary and exhausted. Not only are we limited till we we will become weary and exhausted, we fall. Look at what it says next. And vigorous young men stumble badly. When youth simply refers to healthy young people, vigorous young men refers to healthy young men who are specially trained for a task. Think, say, an Olympic level athlete. Despite their training, they will at some point run out of strength themselves. Sure, a world class runner can run faster and further than we can. But guess what world class runners eventually do? They run out of strength to run any further. Those who compete in the world's strongest men competitions. Yeah, absolutely. They're stronger than four or five regular people. But their strength fails them at times. You go to YouTube, you search for weightlifting fails. You can find massive beasts of men 
lifting weights and their arms collapse and them drop five, six hundred pounds down upon them chests. Not because they're weak. They're not. They're massive. But everyone's strength has a limit. And eventually they fail just like everyone else does. Part of being a human is having limitations. And one of the limitations is that we have a limited amount of strength and a limited amount of endurance. And when we aren't aware of our limitations, we become proud. We become puffed up. Pride always becomes a barrier between us and God. Pride feeds the illusion of self-sufficiency. The greater our pride, the greater the illusion of self-sufficiency and strength we will have. The greater the illusion of self-sufficiency, the less we will see our need for God. This pride, this illusion of self-sufficiency creates a barrier between us and God. We never access His strength. We never receive what He has to offer until an overwhelming time of circumstances begin to crush our pride, exposing our weaknesses, exposing our limitations, driving us to seek the Lord our God. But once our pride is broken, we naturally begin to seek God. We begin to draw closer to God because we realize He is something we are not and will never be. He is great. He is awesome. He is limitless. We're told in verse 31 that those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up like wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and become not become weary. Waiting on the Lord is one of the hardest things for us to do. Because God doesn't move at the time when we want Him to necessarily. God moves at the time when He knows things are right. And one of the things I believe, I'm convinced of, that, that makes the time right is when we come to the end of ourselves. Waiting on God reminds us He's God and we're not. Reminds us we can't do it. We're not great. We're not limitless. He alone is. And in that moment. When we have come to the end of ourselves, it's only then. That we begin to experience the strength. The power of God at work in our lives. We don't have time to get into big details on this, but I just want you to to notice all of the wills in this last verse. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Just a quick survey of what those things mean. Gain new strength means just like what it says. God will give us the strength when we depend upon Him. We realize we need His strength. Mount up with Wings like eagles. I think from what I can gather, it it pictures just basically overcoming. There there will be time 
When we're weak, when we're helpless, we call upon the Lord and His new strength will come upon us and we will rise up and we will begin to overcome the trials and the troubles in our life. We will walk and not get tired, run and not get tired, walk, not become weary. I think this talks about endurance. You know, the Christian life, being a disciple of Jesus, it's 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 not a sprint. And that would be easy, right? I mean, you, you just dig down and you, you go really hard for a week. Boom, you're done. And that, anybody can do that. That's easy. But it's today. And it's tomorrow. And it's the rest of this week. And it's the week after that. And the week after that. And the month after that. And the month after that. And the year after that. And the year after that. And the year after that. And being being a disciple of Christ, it is it's an endurance. It's a marathon. It, it's not a sprint. How do we remain faithful into the end? How do we maintain a level of zeal that we might feel today for the next 50 years or until Christ comes back? We continually remember our desperate need of Him. For only He can give us the endurance we need. You and I cannot do the things that need to be done on our own. We simply aren't strong enough. We aren't strong enough in the moment and we aren't strong enough in the long run. We must recognize our continual dependence on God. Wait upon the Lord until we recognize, acknowledge our weakness. And then we will receive from Him everything we need to do what needs to be done. And in that moment, our weakness is magnifying God's strength. There may be some in here tonight and you feel as weak as you've ever been. You wonder how much longer you can go on. You're down. You're discouraged. You're disillusioned. And you really, you don't know how much longer you can go on. You feel beat up. You're tired. You're just, you're tired of feeling overwhelmed. Listen. There is no magic fix for this. Anything or anyone that promises you three keys to a quick fix to that is a liar. They are not your friend. They are not on your side. They see you as merchandise. This is how we make it through those times. We acknowledge our weakness. Not in a shameful way. Not in a, an apologetic way. We in fact. We in some ways. The apostle Paul says. I will glory in my weakness. So that his strength will be made perfect in me. We, we, we lean into the fact we're weak. We lean into the fact we're limited. We lean into the fact we can't. And we go to the God who can And we go to the throne of grace where we are promised to find grace and mercy to help us in the time of need. And we're promised over and over and over again. 
Our God will meet us there. Our God will help us there. Our God will enable us there. Look at chapter 41, verse 10, and we'll close with this. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and wonderful, worthy. And Father, help us to lean into our weaknesses. Our culture makes weakness a vice. We're to be ashamed of it. We beat and belittle and berate people who are weak. We tell them to toughen up and to suck it up and to just do better. And strangely enough, we're surprised when those words of encouragement don't help. So, Lord, we hide our weakness even from you. We try to be tough to others. We, we even try to be tough to you. No, no, I, I would never want to bother God with my piddly little problems. There's bigger things going on. Oh, God, kill that sort of pride within us. We are a weak people. That's not a shameful thing. That's not a bad thing. That's just the reality of who we are. We're a needy people. We need you. Father, we need you to guide us. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to help us mount up with wings like eagles and overcome the problems of our lives. We need you to help us to persevere to the end. For the one who's beat up here today, Lord, let them feel your, your love for them. Let them feel your satisfaction for them in Christ. Let them know, Lord, that they are your beloved child. And that no matter what the circumstance is, they are more than a conqueror because of what Christ has done. Help them, Father, to repent and renounce the enemy's lies that are leading them down a path of self-loathing and self-condemnation because of how weak they feel they are. Let them understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he said he would glory in his weakness because of that moment Christ's strength was made perfect in them. Let us be strong in you the power of your might. Stand against the wiles of the enemy. To be faithful to the end, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.